Hello again, and welcome to another edition of Halftime with Chuck and Drew. And as always, because we know we roll over our listening audiences yeah. from show to show before we alienate people, we introduce right. ourselves. <laughs> as such, I will tell you that I am Chuck and... I am Drew. All right, as always. Um, did you know, Drew, that this is show number 13? I did not. Wow, I lost. Have we been doing? Yeah, I guess like we've been doing this for. We're in. We're starting our fourth month now. If you can believe that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know, by now I thought someone would have been smart enough to cancel us. Yeah, I know. <laughs> or that some terrorist group would have taken us hostage, just for the right, simple yeah. reason that they'd want want us off the air too. Yeah. <laughs> but that hasn't happened. So we're on the show number thirteen, and as we always do, we'll start out by discussing what we're watching on TV or on our streaming services. So I'll let you lead off. Okay, what what are we watching? Well, let, let's see, like, what have I been watching? Uh, a lot of soccer. Uh, so, but, man, we're, we're 30 seconds in and I'm already stumped. Okay, the one, like, Pretend It's a City by Fran Lebowitz, I saw, like, a clip of that, and I've, saw, I've gotten through the first two episodes, and it kind of, it's perfect because it's just this witty, cynical, older woman that lives in New York talking about uh, everything that annoys her in New York, which doesn't sound too exciting, but it is hilarious. Like, well, that could be several seasons right there all by yeah. itself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm watching a show and I've gone back across the pond to English television and okay. uh, it's called Bloodlands and it features an actor by the name of James Nesbitt, who is a police detective who is investigating a series of disappearances in Northern Ireland. One of those disappearances actually involves his wife. Uh, she was a military official, I believe, and it happened 20 years ago. So while he's investigating what they believe is a serial killer, he's trying to find out exactly what happened to his wife. And it, yeah. it's kind of fascinating because he has almost like PTSD from all this while he's dealing with this. And it's it's a pretty good show. I've only watched uh, two or three episodes thus far, but I've enjoyed it. And now we go on to our most popular and, and your most favorite segment. Yeah. The, and I think this is the best segment, not just that we do, but that anybody does anywhere. Right. I, I, this was I, ingenious, Chuck, you coming up with this. Oh, I, I realize that. You know, the thing is, I haven't told you is that I've been approached several times by a number of large-scale networks asking to yeah. buy the rights to this but <laughs> yeah. because I'm the only one that really knows how this should be done I refuse right. because I'm holding out for more money not just for yeah. me but I'm I'm going to give you your 10% don't worry okay. yeah <laughs> it's called who knew about drew our ongoing segment where we celebrate the ultimate and unbelievable manliness of our very own drew barnett <laughs> This is a shorter one today. Okay. Today that we learned that Drew is the only man alive who can actually make onions cry. Onions make me cry. I, I cannot stand onion. Like I eat just about anything that's put in front of me, but I ask them to leave the onion out like just about all the time. I, I don't know why. And I've found is this is going to sound crazy. I almost think it's psychological because if onions are in food and I can pretend they're not there or if I don't know they're there, I don't mind them. Like I don't mind them on Big Macs. I actually don't even mind them on White Castles. But like if it's raw or even if they're cooked and they're visible and I can see them and, and feel them, I, I just can't stand them, which doesn't make any sense. What about onion like, rings? Uh, well, 
I, I don't know. I, Anything that's fried, it's not good for you. So you ab- absolutely yeah. have to taste good. Right. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. All right. I do like grilled onions on burgers. Yeah. Uh, I don't mind the little onions on like a Big Mac or something like that. I don't really notice yeah. them. But generally, I'm not a big onion guy either. But right. I really do admit when uh, I can get some grilled onions on top of a burger made on a grill, I'm yeah. all about it. I, I can do that and do that a lot. So, but anyway, that's another impressive skill of yours. If you can make yeah, onions cry. I can make onions cry. Yeah. It, it, they, unfortunately, I don't like them, so I like making them cry. <laughs> Maybe that's why they're crying because you don't like yeah. it. <laughs> we also have something new we want to try to do every month, uh, at least one show per month. And it's, I won't say letters from listeners, but comments from listeners. Yeah. And probably in our case, comments from disgruntled former listeners. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. People wanting their money back. And right now it's a free show. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So we've had to take out second jobs so we can pay them. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Here's here's the first one. Uh, Dear Chuck and Drew, I really enjoy the show. I listen at night. Thanks to you guys, I no longer have insomnia and fall asleep quite easily. <laughs> I am now also saving money on the over-the-counter sleep medications. I don't need any more. This from William F. of Broken Leg, Oklahoma. <laughs> William, we're glad for whatever glad reason that you like our show. It doesn't really matter how you use us or abuse us. We're glad that you're on board with us. Yeah. It's kind of like the love boat. We have room for everybody, uh, especially after they've all been to the bar. All right. Now, letter number two or comment number two, dear Chuck and Drew, Chuck, you really need to let Drew talk more. You have never known when to shut up. Oh, all right, Dad. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's from your dad. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's always good to have uh, support from family. Um, and then one more we've got here. Dear Chuck and Drew, I get out in six months. Watch your back. Inmate number 227-1947G, Federal Correctional Complex, Lisbon, Ohio. Obviously, he's not talking about me. He must be talking about you when he says <laughs> back. Because Watch my back knows to what a kind soul I am and how caring and comforting I am on this show. So it can't be me. It's got to be you on this show. I'm I'm glad you qualified that. Can we turn this (laughs) in and join the FBI witness protection program? (laughs) Uh, Only if we quit doing the show. (laughs) I I think it probably pays better than this anyway. (laughs) does. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So we'll tell people right now, if you do have comments, suggestions, or even veiled threats, such as inmate 227-1947G from Lisbon, Ohio, you can reach us at halftime240 at gmail.com. Just know already that we are under surveillance from the U.S. Justice Department. So yeah. All right. All right. First topic, we're going to talk about um, rules changes that have come and rules changes that are being looked at involving major league baseball like before we say get into this i love baseball as far as an enjoyment factor i can't rattle off uh current players and like who's managing who and who plays for who i wouldn't call myself a diehard fan if i tried to play fantasy baseball it would be a colossal failure i just don't know the sport as far as the players and the statistics and the strategies and the teams all that well, but I love the game itself. I like watching it. It's got a fascinating history. I almost am more interested. I've read more books about the history of baseball than probably any other sport, Hmm. but um, one of the, but I kind of like it 
the way that it is. And one of the things I know you're probably a more of a fan or at least a more knowledgeable fan as far as you would, you would kill me in, in fantasy baseball. Uh, just about everyone. Would. That's why I invited you to join our league. Yeah, that, that's I want to make sure was there was somebody I could beat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when you talk about baseball rules, really there haven't been a lot of changes uh, in the last several years. I think really the most significant one came about in 2008 when they decided to enact instant replay to gauge whether or not certain balls were home runs or not, whether they wrapped around the foul pole or went to the opposite side of the foul pole. And then the instant replay system was expanded in 2014 to include certain calls on the field. A manager gets to challenge one call per game. I don't know why, but they get two for an all-star game, which is basically an exhibition game. I don't know why. Right, uh, it, a meaningless them. game for the And then they get them again in postseason play, and I'm okay with that. Yeah. Uh, if a manager's challenge is upheld, he gets to keep his challenge and use it again. I don't like that. I think once you use your challenge, that should be that. All challenge calls are reviewed by a replay umpire or official, if you want to call it that, in New York. Uh, the problem is – the replay delays are only supposed to be about two and a half minutes maximum. But however, for those of us who have watched a lot of Major League Baseball games, there are many times the replay review goes on and on and on, well past that two and a half minute supposed deadline. Right. Also, what I don't like is that managers on close plays can signal upstairs to someone they have looking at plays to determine whether or not if they want to use their challenge, and they have 20 seconds to do that. Sometimes I've seen times where there's some kind of close play or whatever, or a ball that could be caught in the outfield or possibly trapped. The team's running off the field. The other manager says, hold the phone. I want to see if I'm going to challenge this. Everyone has to stop and stand around for a few seconds to wait to determine whether or not this guy's going to use his challenge. And I believe that it should be instantaneous you decide right then and there either you're going to challenge, you're not going to challenge, but you're not going to hold up the game. I agree with that because part of it is the gamesmanship. The other thing, and this drives me nuts, regardless of the sport, baseball, football, uh, basketball for sure, is the amount of time. I, I think the standard should be in like conclusive evidence. And if you're taking – in my opinion, more than 60 seconds. Like if you've, if you've made a call on the field and it's reviewed and after looking at it for 60 seconds, you're still not sure by definition, there has to be some sort of dispute there. If there was no dispute, you would be sure. So in my opinion, after 60 seconds, that's it. The call on the field or the court stands. That, that would like be, that. if I were king for a day, the rule. Yeah. I like that. If it takes you that long to decide, then it's probably – it's not irrefutable evidence. At right. That point. So I agree with you on that. You get this amount of time, one minute or whatever, and that's it. If you can't decide, the call on the field stands as is. The biggest one, I think, being considered right now when you talk about rules changes, and it's actually being – and has been uh, done in the Atlantic League where they're, they've been trying it out, is moving the mound back a foot. And this is the idea is that we have more hard throwers in the game of baseball now. Guys are throwing in the upper 90s, 100 miles an hour or so. And they're trying to basically slow them down and induce more contact in the game because the strikeout rate for major league hitters at this point of the season is 25%. That's 10 points higher than it was for last year's 60-game COVID-19 pandemic schedule. 
Yeah. They want to move it back to 61 and a half feet. And as I said, it's being test driven right now in the Atlantic League. And uh, I don't know about that. I mean, the mound has been 60 feet, six inches since 1893. Before that, pitchers threw from a pitcher's box and they stood on the back line of that box, which is about anywhere they wanted to on that back line of the box, which was about four feet long. And they were essentially delivering pitches from about 55 and a half feet. So they moved that back and put a mound in there and made it 60 feet, six inches. And that's the way it's always been. If you look at the way the diamond lines up too, the way you can basically run from first base, touch the pitcher's rubber, and then go to a straight line across the third, that mound is going to be back. It's going to be offset from those two bases. It's going to look kind of funny. I wonder what the effect would be in terms of possible injuries to pitchers who now have to throw the ball an extra foot. That is a good point. And, and I guess, what is it you're trying to accomplish? And I guess, obviously, this is to give some sort of advantage to the hitter that they don't already have. It gives them more time to react, more time to hit the ball, and potentially either more balls in play or more home runs. But I, I'm not – I just don't see the point. Some of the things that are problems I, I just don't foresee as being problems, like the strikeout rate is up. Well, so what? I don't really see a need to address that or change that. Now, compared to softball or, like, let's just say women's college softball in particular, one of the reasons – that I enjoy that game and that a lot of people do is just the rate at which the ball is put in the play. It's different, but we're not baseball and softball while similar are not the same. And I just don't have a problem with the sport itself or or feel that it needs addressing is like every ball or 50% of the pitches need to be live balls in play. I think a lot of it also has to do with the way hitting is being taught these days. There's more of an emphasis on hitting home runs. Right. And because of that, you have these guys up there from one through eight or nine in the lineup, depending if it's National League or American League, swinging for the fences. And they're, you've heard the term launch angle. They're trying to get lift on these balls. They're trying to get underneath everything and put it in the air. Well, everything above their belt, when they're uppercutting every swing, they can't hit pitches above their belt, especially yeah. at 95 miles an hour or more. So – Get back to teaching hitting where contact, especially with two strikes, is more important. Yeah. And I think the way you do that, Drew, and it comes back to a lot of things we'll talk about in just a moment, is to deaden the baseball. Now, they said they've deadened the ball just a little bit this year because there were too many home runs being hit. But a lot of the offenses in Major League Baseball over the last few years have become so reliant on the home run to score that the action on the bases is completely non-existent. As a matter of fact, I know that uh, two years ago, and my favorite team is the Chicago Cubs. Most people know that. 51% of the Cubs' runs in 2019 came as the result of home runs in some way. That's Ooh. too many. Maybe I, I agree 30%, with that. 40% at, at most. Teach these guys how to make contact. It's not that hard. That's what we were taught. Choke up, make contact, hit the ball the other way. But if the ball is deadened, and it's not going over the fence as much, you're going to start to steal more bases. You're going to use more hit and runs. You're going yeah. to have sacrifice bunts. You're going to have squeeze bunts, i.e. There are going, there's going to be action on the bases. Some of the most exciting teams, and it pains me to say it because I'm a Cubs fan, were the 1980s Cardinals. Because those guys, when they got on base, 
they're on the move nonstop the entire game. They had to create runs, and they were stealing bases all over the place. They were putting their runners in motion. They were bunting. They were doing whatever they could. You were on the edge of the seat when they had guys on base. Chuck, that's a really good idea, and I think that sometimes in an attempt to make baseball more palatable or more popular or, or whatever it is they're trying to do, yeah, a home run is exciting, but you can sort of have way too – I mean, you could have too many pieces of cake to where you're tired of the cake. Baseball in the 80s, it wasn't nearly as home run heavy. I'd be willing to bet I'm, – I'm I haven't looked this up, but I'd be willing to bet that no team got more than half of their runs off of home runs. But the game was more exciting. The stadiums, the attendance was up. The TV ratings were up. It was a more popular game in the 80s. And, yeah, the home run was a part of the game. The Bash brothers uh, were, were a huge deal, but so were the Cardinals. Yeah, two years ago, the Minnesota Twins – set a major league record by hitting over 300 home runs in a single season. Yeah, that's uh, that's yeah. incredible. And yeah. it, it, it just becomes to the point where the home run is so passe, you expect them to be hit. It's not as exciting because they're always being hit. It's right. like when someone yells at you all the time, you tune them out. It, it doesn't mean anything to you. People who talk softly and then yell every now and then, they get your attention. Home run yeah. when it's happening, you know, just every so often. It's almost like slow pitch softball right now in Major League yeah. Baseball. I like baseball because it's not slow pitch softball. I know, yeah. The home run should be more special than what it is, and that's why deadening the baseball would help with that. I, I agree with that. And there's something fun about seeing, at least to me, seeing runs manufactured and seeing, okay, a runner's on second now. How does the infield shift, or how do, how do you defend that? as opposed to who's batting, are they left-handed or are they right-handed? A lot of the intricacies and a lot of the chess of baseball, when I said that I like the game, that's one of the things that I really enjoy watching about it, especially when you're at the ballpark and you can see the whole field. Like television, you, you can't, at least not as well. But if everything is a home run, if more than half of our runs are coming off of home runs, that sort of goes away a little bit. We won't be able to go through all the rules changes, I think, that uh, are being proposed right now or are being reviewed at the minor yeah. league level. Uh, one that's kind of interesting, and people are always complaining about the human factor in calling balls and strikes, the umpires at home plate. Mm -hmm. Some of the minor leagues, uh, the Atlantic League started in 2019, have been experimenting with robot umpires to make calls on balls and strikes. The umpires themselves hate it. And the thing about it is the technology has not been perfected. I talked to a friend of mine who is a college umpire and knows several professional umpires, some as high as the major leagues, and they don't like the idea at all. I, I kind of like the human factor to a degree on yeah. missed calls. I mean, it, it creates conversation. It, it creates passion during a ball game. I guess, you know, you, you could say, well, how do you feel about it if a call is missed when your team's up the bat? Sure, I don't like it, but it, it intensifies the experience for me. But at the same time, yeah. you can't argue balls and strikes with a robot. And the other thing, the robots right now are far from perfect. They're not accurate. Managers don't know how to respond to that because they can see, like, that's a terrible call by the robot. And the home plate umpire is going, so what? He called it a strike, so it's a strike. Yeah, and, and I had seen this introduced and experimented with, and the game, at least as a fan watching it, still felt pretty much the same. The, the setup here was someone in the press box or somewhere was watching the uh, game or watching the robot, 
he would radio the call down to the home plate umpire and the home plate umpire would simply parrot it like ball strike. And I, I guess the idea was to take the, the element of human error out of the game. And I understand the logic and I, I don't know, I wasn't so opposed to it that I didn't think it wasn't worth trying. But like you said, everybody you talk to, not just umpires, but players and managers and coaches don't seem to like it that, that have played in games like that. Another one involves pitchers and pickoff moves. As I said, we can't go through all the proposed <laughs> rules changes, but down in, the, I guess, the lower levels of the minor leagues, this is stupid. This one I really yeah. hate. They're forcing pitchers to completely step off the rubber before attempting to pick a runner off base, and they're limiting pickoff tries to two per at-bat. Okay, so part of the deception on a pickoff is the fact that you have your foot on the rubber and the guy at first base, for instance, has no idea in a lot of cases when you might be coming over. Yeah. Well, to take your foot, your back foot off the rubber, a pitcher, it's pretty obvious what's about to happen, and it's pretty easy to get back to first base. And the other thing is you have two pickoffs. So what happens after you've used your two pickoffs? This guy's dancing one-third of the way or halfway down the second base, and you can't yeah. do anything. You can't hit me. You know, and it's, it's an easy stolen base. So I think that that's a rule that, or possible rule that needs to be thrown in the trash. It just uh, doesn't make any sense. None at all. The Atlantic League has sort of become Dr. Frankenstein's baseball laboratory, and now they're experimenting a little bit with the designated hitter rule. And this one might have some merit. As you know, the DH has been in the American League since 1973. The National League has refused to adopt the DH, except for last year when they're using the COVID-19 pandemic rules during the 60-game season. It's out of the National League this year again. In the Atlantic League this year, teams will lose their DH after they remove their starting pitcher. The goal is to force teams to keep their starting pitchers in longer. So, all right, my thought is, can that lead to more injuries? Because you're afraid to lose your DH, you leave your guy out there a little longer when he's worn out. Uh, the other thing is ineffectiveness. He's getting bashed around, and you, you leave him out there because you think, I don't want to lose my DH. I, I don't really know. I'm not, I'm not sold one way or another on that particular rule. I, I'm not either, but it raises the question, at least with me, uh, who decided this was a problem? Like, oh, we, we, you know what we really need to make the game better is the starting pitcher needs to pitch longer than what they are. I mean, I mean – who just woke up one day and decided, man, that's a problem that we need to fix? I think that's another one that you don't really need to do it, so don't yeah. do it. Right. <laughs> a rule that was adopted last year by Major League Baseball, I don't like this one either. Relief pitchers have to pitch to at least three batters unless they're finishing an inning or they get hurt. I don't like this rule. No. So what happens when a guy comes in there, you put him in for the first batter, he's completely ineffective. And I've seen this happen, you have too. He yeah. walks the first guy. He walks the second guy. You'd get him out of there if you could, but you can't. And the next guy gets a hit, a run scores. And by then, the game – or it's a home run. By then, the game is lost. It can impact the outcomes of games by uh, leaving it, these guys in there. If the object is to win, you try to find every which way you can to win. But this rule ties the hands of managers in their efforts to win games, I think. 
Uh, it, it does, and it's also totally unnecessary for the reason you're you are already naturally limited to the number of pitchers you can use to the number of pitchers you have. <laughs> you know, so why you know why try and force the issue? The next one is, and this has been a controversy brewing for a couple of years now because a lot of teams are using infield shifts based on a hitter's metrics of where they hit the ball most often. Yeah. And this is happening at the major league level, and uh, they're trying to get rid of the shift. A lot of people said, we need to make it a rule, no more shift, because we want to increase offense. In double-A this year, infielders have to start with both feet inside the infield dirt. Like, essentially, there are no more rovers playing short right field and fielding ground balls and throwing guys out at first base anymore. Uh, and to people who hate the shift, I say this, Guys need to learn to hit. They need to learn to hit the other way. Well, why should they have to do that? Well, they're major league hitters. You don't think that the best hitters in the world can learn to every now and then punch the ball to the opposite side of the field. And I'll use one key example because he fits the profile of a lot of major league hitters today. And you'll remember this name, Dave Kingman. Dave mm -hmm. Kingman was an all or nothing type guy at the plate. He has something like, uh, I think, 450 or close to it, lifetime home runs, but he's a lifetime 230 hitter who probably struck out at least one-third of the time that he went to bat. That's a lot of what we're seeing right now in Major League Baseball. But in 1979, Dave Kingman was the National League most valuable player for the Chicago Cubs. He had his highest batting average ever, 288. And you say, well, how did he do that if he was such a terrible hitter? They taught him how to make contact is what they did. Yeah. They were shifting on Dave Kingman to cover the left side of the infield. So what he would do, especially with runners on, if they shifted, he'd just punch little ground balls to the right side. He got a ton of RBIs that way. It can be done. It can yes. be done. And my thing with shifting is that I, I think that that's, there is some skill to it. That's a lot of scouting. That's a lot of defensive strategy. And essentially, you don't – to me, saying I want to get shifting out of the game is basically like saying we want to make the game less strategic. That's what I would say to people that don't like the shift. So you don't like strategy. Well, it comes back to I don't know what to do, so I'll just change the rule. <laughs> right, the, yeah. the, way it's, the way things are working, I'll just change the rules. Uh -huh. No, I don't agree with that. Uh, if you look out behind the pitcher, there are still only seven fielders, and there is just as much – green space, open green space, whether the infielders and outfielders are shifted or not. Right, Learn to yeah. hit the ball like we Willie Keeler once said, hit them where they ain't. Hit them where they ain't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think that's the answer there. I just, don't, I just don't think you need to legislate everything. Another rule that I don't like, Major League Baseball adopted it last year again because of the COVID-19 pandemic. They're using it again this year. And I hate to say it, but this is a softball rule, and I know that they use it in women's collegiate they, softball. They shouldn't use it there either. Yes. A runner at second base to start extra innings so you don't have to play that many extra innings. I hate it because it's not baseball. I think baseball is players earning their way on base in some way, not just being given a base. And why should a pitcher be charged with allowing a run when the rules put that runner on base? They shouldn't. This is, again, solving a problem that really isn't a problem. There's another extra inning rule that I'm sure we're going to get to that's infinitely even stupider than this one. But 
my thing is, I think the idea with an overtime in any sport, and in the case of baseball as extra inning, is to alter the game as little as possible or not at all and still be able to end the game reasonably quickly. In basketball, nothing is altered. You just put five minutes on the clock. I would even argue that maybe we only need four, uh, but five is fine. Baseball, nothing until now has been altered. And we have seen like the percentage of games that go into extra innings that go beyond the 11th, the 12th. It happens. There's 16 inning games, maybe one a year out of the thousands that are played. This is not a regular problem. It did not to be it, – it's fixing a problem that is not actually a problem. Again, this is about Rob Manfred trying to mess with baseball. He said when he took over as commissioner that he was going to fundamentally change the game and people not, might not recognize it or like it as the years went forward. He's absolutely right. In addition to yeah. not liking – his ideas for rules changes. I just don't like him because I don't think he really knows a damn thing about baseball or really understands the game or the fans. Uh, He's also come up with the idea for this year, and this was last year too as well. They've carried it into this year. Hopefully this is the last year for it. Well, I want to step back because you mentioned something about uh, extra innings. We want to do that other thing I just talked about in a moment, but I want to point out in the Pioneer League, which is a very low-level league, they're now using a home run derby to settle games that are tied after nine innings. This is, this is, is over the chart, over the moon, idiotic. <laughs> yeah. Whoever came up with that idea needs to be put into the FBI witness protection program and never to be seen again in the Western Hemisphere. Yes. To get back to what I said about altering the game as little as possible. One of the worst overtimes or way to decide a game, in my opinion, is soccer. And I'm a big soccer fan. You know that. But in knockout games, in knockout games, they're settled by penalty kicks. And I hate the idea that we stop playing soccer entirely and move to something else almost that is such a small, normal part of the game. And that's how we decide who advances and who doesn't. This is essentially along the lines of being as dumb as that, because we're essentially going to stop playing baseball altogether. And we're just going to see who can knock it out of the park. You notice that that rule from soccer carried into hockey where they have the shootout now to decide games after overtime. And from there, and we used to joke about that. We used to say that's like using a home run derby to determine the result for a baseball game. And lo and behold, the pioneer (laughs) league is now using a home run derby to determine the results of games. And that just, that's just stupid. That needs to go away too. Uh, What I was going to touch on was, Major League Baseball has gone to this thing. It started last year, and this may not last past this year, seven-inning games for double headers, something that's done in college baseball. This is problematic when you start yeah. to figure ERAs, which are based on nine innings, mm-hmm. and also in record-keeping. Okay, a few days ago, Arizona's Madison Bumgarner threw a seven-inning no-hitter against the Atlanta Braves, but – in their infinite wisdom, Major League Baseball officials who decided that doubleheader games would be seven innings ruled it was not a no-hitter because the game didn't go nine innings. What? Yeah. What? Listen, Sybil, you got to have it one way or another. You can't have it both ways. Um, yeah, I don't think – not at the major league level anyway. Um, this, it's a nine-inning game. Everybody gets three at bat. I, I just don't – you still got two more innings to go if you've only played seven. 
And right. to me, that's as idiotic as saying we're gonna we're gonna shorten an NFL game to forty five minutes. Well, we've run out of time for baseball, so that means we've got to move into our next topic. All right, Drew, it's time for the pop culture segment of our program. It's one that we always seem to have a great deal of fun with. Yeah. And this one should be a great deal of fun all on its own because it's about one-hit wonders, the yeah. best and worst of them. Yeah, the best and and there, and there are some great wins, and you just wonder how is it that they could have a song that good and they only had one hit, and then there's a lot of others that you're just like, thank God that was the only song that they tortured us with. You know who my best one is? What What's your best one? I, Francis I, I, Scott Key, The Star-Spangled Banner. <laughs> <laughs> Written by the 35-year-old lawyer and amateur poet on September 14, 1814, after he witnessed the British bombardment of Fort McHenry and the Baltimore Harbor during the War of 1812. He was so inspired in writing this song by seeing the stars and stripes flying over the fort during the battle. And later on, of course, in 1931, it was adopted as the U.S. National Anthem. But for Mr. Francis Scott Key, it was mic drop time because he knew it could never get any better than that as he ended his songwriting career with one note, yet a high note. Yeah. Uh, that one got me thinking, Chuck, since you went in that direction. I, I don't know if this is the best one or the worst one. It's probably somewhere in between. It depends on if it's if it's being sung to me, I hate it. If it's being sung to other people, I can tolerate it. Happy birthday to you by Patty Smith Hill. As far as I know, she never had another hit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's probably the only top hit that is sung every single day <laughs> yeah. all the way around the world in some language to somebody. It, yeah, it probably is. I mean, it was a smash. Of thousands of times a, a day. Yeah. And that's kind of a cool thing to think about. <laughs> yeah. So it was a smash. I don't know if she gets royalties or whoever every time it's played, but wow. Well, and if she did, uh, or if her descendants did, uh, they're sitting in a large mansion somewhere with thousands of acres surrounding them and uh, yeah, good for them. All right. We can get into, I guess, what you'd call uh, <laughs> more traditional one-hit wonders. One of the ones that's talked about a lot is from 1967, and you'll remember it, Incense and Peppermints by Strawberry Alarm Clock. It might be, in some ways, the inspiration behind the term One Hit Wonder. Those guys did nothing yeah. after that particular song, yet they're still out there performing, and they actually have a website <laughs> that you could go to. Yeah, and, and that's kind of incredible. Like, I know it was a fictional movie, but when you look at something called That Thing You Do, which was, again, a fictitious band that had this hit and then disappeared, you would think that that's how most one-hit wonders would go, that they were a group, that they were together for eight months, they had one hit, and it blew up uh, for whatever reason. It, it's crazy that they had one hit and they are still around. Like, yeah, I imagine their, I was, to their concerts are pretty short. <laughs> yes. That's it. We're out. <laughs> One song, yeah. we're done. <laughs> and and are they sick of playing it yet? I mean, if they... <laughs> as long as they're getting paid, I bet they're not sick of it. <laughs> right, yeah. Another favorite of mine comes from 1973. And I consider this the greatest nighttime driving song of all time. And probably more speeding tickets have been written because of it. Yeah. Radar Love from Golden Earring. And, you know, Golden Earring was founded in 1961, if you can believe that. 
and they're still out there performing. <laughs> yeah, again, another <laughs> that one song, another short concert. But it's a great song. And yeah, it is. You, you, you hear it every now and then in commercials and things like that. So these guys, uh, I guess it's like getting that one at bat in the major leagues before you get sent back down to the minors. Yeah. And you hit a home run. Yeah. And that's essentially what they did. Moving up a little bit to 1980, I have a song that I like. I actually have the album for it, too. Turning Japanese by The Vapors. It's about a guy who's in prison who's pining away for his Asian girlfriend. The band actually disbanded about a year later in 1981. And the song was actually re-recorded in 2009 by actress Kirsten Dunst for a video that was shown at an exhibition in London. Huh. Didn't know that, did you? <laughs> no, I didn't. But it, it's, it's a cool song. I love the guitar work in that particular song. And, um, you know, some people might think it's a little politically incorrect in the times we live in right now, but I like the song. And so I'm yeah. just going to put it on my list. Uh, here's one that you and I both agree on is, is great because it produced, I think, the greatest and most creative rock video ever. Yeah. Take On Me, 1985, from the Norwegian synth-pop band AHA. Yeah, and synth-pop kind of was, that as a whole genre of music may have been sort of a one-hit wonder. At least it was real popular for a while with them and Depeche Mode. But but yeah, that song, it, it's a good song. And the video was really innovative. Now, if you were to watch, even if you watch it now, I think it's impressive but it was certainly impressive back in 1985 when nothing like that had been done before. The way it was both live anim like live action and animation, and it's a good song. And you kind of wonder you're, next. You're going to tell me that they're still performing. Yeah, they actually <laughs> are. Yeah, like why Aha didn't do more than what they did? Uh, they were, because I they were talented. I really did. Yeah. For people who've not seen it, the video features a woman who becomes enamored with a man she sees in a newspaper comic that she's reading at a diner. And somehow she is able to enter into the comic itself and become part of the storyline and then escapes later on. I mean, the video itself, it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my life when it first came out. It was the best. And it's still one of the best rock videos of all time. If it's not the best, it's in the top two, three to five. Yeah. Easily. Here's one, and this one comes from the uh, Motown soul era of music, 1975. A lot of people remember Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. Well, a lot of people don't know this, Drew. The Miracles actually had a career after Smokey left them. Smokey went on and had a great career. I like Smokey Robinson yeah. a lot. I love a lot of the Motown sound, but the Miracles went on to perform, and uh, they had one major hit, and it's called I'm Just a Love Machine in 1975. This is a song that if you can't dance to it or laugh at it, then you're yeah. in some sort of catatonic state that requires serious medical attention. It was a number one hit on the charts. The best part of it for me is this guy who sounds like a constipated bear doing a, a baritone line here and there. It goes, I'm just a love machine and I won't work for nobody but you, yeah, baby. And again, oh, yeah. <laughs> Either that or they got the Kool-Aid man to do the backup vocal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's really, it's a great, great song. And this band performed for many years. 
they actually uh, performed on and off together through 2011. Uh, here's one that a lot of people will recognize because it's been used in movies. Any kind of a movie that talks about the 70s or commercials that refer to the 70s. Brandy, You're a Fine Girl, 1972, from yeah. the group Looking Glass. That mm. was a huge hit for Looking Glass. It's a, a number one that, as I, I talked about, is still popular today. Yeah. The number 12 song for all of 1972 is ranked by Billboard magazine. And who can't like a song about a seaport barmaid who has unrequited love for a seven seas sailor? Yeah, th there you go. That Looking was the book. The barmaid was good, but the seven seas sailor was what put that song over the top. Yeah, he was kind of that, a one-hit wonder with her. I yeah, guess. that was sort of that was he. How fitting is that? So, <laughs> Looking Glass actually broke up shortly after they produced that hit. Uh, I, I find that very unsurprising. But then but, again, I was shocked that some of these bands are still around. But, Drew, the good news is Looking Glass reunited in 2003, and for the last 18 years, they've been performing together. What they've been performing besides Brandy, we have no idea. Right. <laughs> um, that's one it's got it's either a very short set list or you go there and it's an you get 40 minutes into it and the crowd's like when are you going to play brandy yeah and then yeah <laughs> it's it's also one that's really popular in karaoke bars yeah everyone thinks they can sing it but nobody can except these guys that's yeah. probably why they're still popular and they're still out there performing because they're the only ones that can actually do this song right <laughs> well do you have any did you oh, yeah. So the first one is kind of unique, and I think I ran it by you because you would not think of this band as a one-hit wonder band, but they, you know, because of their whole body of work and the whole basic culture around them. But the Grateful Dead only really had one top 40 hit, and I believe they only had one top 10 album, which was In the Dark. The song was Touch of Grey. They did a video for it. Uh, this was more of a jam band and a live band than it was a studio band. If the Grateful Dead, obviously, they had studio albums that sold moderately well, but they never charted because that just wasn't the Grateful Dead experience. You didn't buy a record and listen to it. You went to see them live to see them basically be a jam band. But Touch of Grey was a huge hit. It was their that first studio album. It took to produce an actual hit. Yeah. That's, oh, a, that's the amazing part about it. You also realize that you better lock your doors because there are a lot of gray, long-haired former hippies who are aging who are right now gathering their pitchforks and torches to rush yeah. your front door because of what you just said about them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> because it's sacrilegious to say anything bad to a deadhead about the dead. <laughs> oh, I love the dead. But but they just weren't a studio band. I mean, that's a fair comment, isn't it? Like, that wasn't – you didn't buy their albums. You went to see them live. I well, guess. and that's true because they were, in, in essence, in many ways – do I use the term cult band? But they Yeah, had, I, I think that's what I would use. It was a culture around it. Like, you were either in that cult or culture or you weren't. Yeah, all right. You've got another one, I'm sure. Yeah, so um, one this one's fairly obvious. Uh, any co There's college bars all over the country playing this song right now. Come on, Eileen, Dexy's Midnight Runners from 1982. This song is 40 years old, and everybody that's ever gone, everybody that's been in school since then has heard this song, sung along to it in the bar. Uh, and you wonder how, like, whatever happened to them? Are they still around? Did they ever do anything else? 
most of the people know the song and have no idea who that it's Dexy's Midnight Runners. Wouldn't know them if they came into the room, but everyone knows Come On Eileen. Well, about 20 years ago, the movie Tommy Boy actually kind of made that song famous again. Yeah. Because and, they used it. And, and they used it the perfect way because everybody who sings this song kind of looks at one, uh, ah, this is kind of a dorky song and everything. But they sing along to it anyway. Yeah. They don't know how to quite respond to it because they feel like they're losing their man card or whatever for liking it because it's not really <laughs> what you'd call this ultra cool song. You wouldn't see a deadhead. No. <laughs> no, come on, Eileen. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. Uh, uh, so it's interesting that those are the first two. Those, those are <laughs> those mix like oil and water. All right, you got another one. Yeah, a couple. Just uh, this is one that was popular when I was in high school and college. It's called "Closing Time." You still hear it on the radio a little bit, but it was the famous last dance at, at, at a school dance song. It was just perfect. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here is one of the lyrics. And you wondered, it was a really good song. It wasn't just, you, you don't listen to that and think that these were just, you know, average musicians that got lucky. You listen to that and think, man, this is a good sounding band. Uh, I wonder why they never did anything else. Not on the list, but Vanishing Cream by The Hunger. Like, why didn't The Hunger ever do anything else either? But uh, that's that's one that I like. And real quick, I don't know if it's fair to call this, they actually had two hits, I think, um, Coming of Age and High Enough, which was a ballad. They only made one album because they really weren't as much of a band as they were a super band, but I would say Coming of Age by Damn Yankees is another, if, if that qualifies as a one-hit wonder. Yeah, which Damn was, Yankees did a lot of stuff. People may not remember Damn Yankees, but Ted Nugent oh, they were, was a guitarist. I mean, they were a great band. I oh, they it. were Awesome. Uh, quick damn, and this, this defies the spirit of the one-hit wonders, but when they went out on tour, I missed it. I, 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 was, I was in high school, and it was a school night or something, but they played for three and a half hours, no opening act. Tommy Shaw from Styx was there. Uh, I forget the guy's name from Foreigner that was in it, and of course Ted Nugent was in it, and they did everything. I, I mean, it was like three bands in one, and it, it, it was awesome. Yeah, Coming of Age is a, was a big hit. Yeah. Uh, you can find it on YouTube and watch it. Uh, it's it's probably inappropriate now <laughs> because yeah. it talks about you know, yeah. young girls and they're, they're coming of age, basically ripening on the vine, so to speak, and still a good tune to listen to. Right. Uh, is it bad to say that I like Damn Yankees as much or more than I like Sticks in the the bands that assembled Dan Yankees? I think Damn Yankees might be better than all of them. I think you might be right about that. Uh, yeah. I've got something on my one hit wonder list that actually qualifies as my worst ones, but it's actually a one hit wonder double play because this band somehow produced two really bad hits in 1974. Yeah. Okay. And two songs that I really personally despise. Uh, it's an English band called Paper Lace. Their first hit was the night Chicago died and being from Chicago. And I know other people from Chicago feel the same way. They hate this song because it's so historically and geographically inaccurate regarding the city of Chicago and some of the activities back in the gangster era of Chicago, the Roaring Twenties. Yeah. First of all, one of the lines is, Daddy was a cop on the east side of Chicago. All right, first of all, if you look at the street <laughs> grid for the city of Chicago, there is hardly any east side the way the grid lays out most of the east side is under lake michigan 
<laughs> so there really is no east side. Yeah. So it, had there been a large scale battle, unless they were tremendously strong swimmers, most of these guys would have drowned. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing is the cops and the gangsters never had any major battles in the 20s because the gangsters were smart enough to realize that if they did anything like that to the cops, it would really bring the heat down on them. The gangsters spent most of their time killing each other to gain territory and different business opportunities. Yeah. Now, the other song that they did, it's an English band, remember, okay? They did a song about the U.S. Civil War. Okay, now let's, let's remind everyone, the last <laughs> time you were here involved in any kind of wars, there were two wars that you were involved in back in the late 1700s and the early 1800s, and you lost both of those. So you don't yeah. know anything about war, much less the U.S. Civil War. But the song is called Billy Don't Be a Hero. It's about a Union soldier who was told by his fiance not to take any unnecessary chances in battle. Okay? So, so don't go in the Billy battle. Does. We can all guess what Billy does. Billy <laughs> yeah. takes a chance. Billy dies. It is the only pop song ever written about a guy dying in a Civil War battle. There should have never been one to begin with. <laughs> I hate that song. <laughs> oh, um, when you, here's one that I hated. Oh, my God. And it's like, thank God, this only was a one-hit wonder. Uh, I think Los Del Rio was, I think, the name of the band, the Macarena. They, oh. they, they, they killed us. It was, it was like Baby Shark, but worse. It was that bad for however long. And how did that happen? I thought that we had failed as a species because of that song. <laughs> <laughs> well, musically, we certainly did. <laughs> yeah. I think what happened was after that particular song ran its course, we realized that particular band was limited in skill. <laughs> and perhaps we sent them packing, realized that we did not want to have them produce anything else besides that particular song. Yeah. All right, here's another one, and I know you'll remember it. 1992, Baby Got Back from oh, our guy, Sir Mix-A-Lot. A song with just so many redeeming qualities. It's about a guy who likes women with large rear ends with a video featuring several oh. women with large rear ends shaking their large rear ends. And I always thought, you know, this reminds me a lot of some of the Jell-O commercials that I've watched. Uh, yes. And I just remember like really hating that song and hating that video and people that liked it would say, well, why are you so offended by it? I'm like, I'm not offended by it because I think it's offensive. I'm a, I, I think I hate it because it's bad. It's, it's a horrible bad. song. <laughs> horrible. You actually lose IQ points by watching the video. It, it's like, it, it has the same effect on people that eating lead-based paint chips does. That's, that's what it does. Well, and with all that shaking going on in that movie, you, or in that video, rather, you need a motion sickness pill to watch the video. I've got another good one for you that uh, Okay, this is a love. good one. All right, yeah. 1991, I'm Too Sexy for My Shirt. Oh, oh okay. By the British group Right Said Fred. Let me just tell you guys in Right Said Fred, no, you're not. <laughs> yeah. You're really, really not. <laughs> Somehow this song was a number one hit in the U.S., the U.K., Australia, and in Japan. I think only in Japan because most of the people there couldn't understand the words that were being sung. 
they actually weren't really being sung. They were just sort of being read. The good news is, formed in 1989, right said Fred, well, it's not really good news. They're still out there performing. Yeah. And this just proves that you don't have to have much talent to make it in the music industry. It's just a terrible song. Here's one that's sort of interesting, and I don't know if I like it or not, but it's, it's a fascinating story. It's Tub Thumping, which if you don't recognize that title, you'll recognize I Get Knocked Down. The band was Chumba Wumba. Yeah. They are largely a political band. Like, they're real sophisticated. You know, not somebody that would do a cheesy song like that. And they did it kind of as a throwaway, and it exploded. And I, I'm pretty sure the band learn to hate the song, even though it was the only thing they ever did that's at all recognizable. You said they're sophisticated? I don't, I, they like to think of themselves. Uh, like, they did not like that song. <laughs> it's well, about getting in a bar fight. All right, yeah, well, their name is Chumba Wumba. Yeah. <laughs> How sophisticated does that sound? It sounds right. like somebody dropping a small toy down a garbage disposal. <laughs> yeah. like Chumba Wumba? Yeah, chumba or, or like a little kid, like a little baby who can't speak yeah. yet is trying to form words. Yeah, what do you think about that, Junior? Chumba wumba. You know, it's like right. it's just nah, sophistication so, is not my word for them. Yeah, a lot of their sound was more like rock and folk and maybe a little bit of punk and I mean they did a lot of stuff and the one song that goes big is is something that I guess if you were into that little cult following that they had that uh that they didn't like um, another one. And I don't know how to classify this. I don't like this song. A lot of people love it. A lot of people, I do like the band. Uh, they may have had another couple hits, but none is recognizable or as big as this. And most people don't really know that the band did everything else. Cherry pie by warrant. Yeah. Um, oh, so I like Warren. I, I, I thought they did an album before that called Dirty, Rotten, Filthy, Stinking, Rich, and there's some really good songs on it. Heaven's a good song. <laughs> um, Down Boys is a good song. On the Cherry Pie album, there's really good, like uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was actually the original title of it, is good. They're a pretty good band. I know that they kind of get categorized as an 80s cheesy band, largely because of the Cherry Pie song and video. But a lot of the stuff they did in addition to that was actually pretty good. The story about that was that they said you need something else, and they came up with Cherry Pie. I think the record company actually switched the, the name of the album without them knowing it. And then they suddenly became the Cherry Pie Band, and they hated it, even though uh, it was their big hit because they just didn't really – that just didn't who they feel like they were. But I don't know. Should I like the song because without it – would, War would would anybody even remember who Warren was other than a few people that saw him play in the bars before? That's, that? I think that's a really good point because that is the one song that they're truly known for. Yeah. Um, most people have probably have heard of Warren only because of Cherry Pie. Yeah. And uh, it's not a personal favorite of mine, but that's how I know who Warren is, is because of that particular song. Yeah. This is one you will not remember, but I do remember it um, – you may have heard it, though, I will say this, because uh, I, I, I kind of remember this coming out just before I went into college. And it came out during the time of Bruce Lee and the Chop Saki karate movies that had developed very strong cult followings. 1974, Kung Fu Fighting by Jamaican singer and songwriter Carl Douglas. Yeah. 
and, and just that's just a bunch of guys beating each other up with karate moves. Yeah. Oh, and that's one of those songs. I do know the song. I it's it's quite recognizable. Unfortunately, it's one of those. It's like okay. Uh, let's put it this way. Like if I'm like looking for a radio station and I come across that, I don't necessarily stop. I, I, I find out what's next, but if it's on a station that I know is good, uh, I'll probably at least wait till it's over. Well, the good news for you is that Carl's career started in 1961 and yes, he's still out there performing. Okay, Still out there. The video, the video of this actually features a couple of guys fighting on stage, <laughs> throwing karate chops at oh. one another and kicks while Carl is singing in front of them and the band is trying to play behind them. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you know, if you go to certain bars, you know, to see a band, sometimes you get a little bit of that anyway. What else? Have you got one? You got another one? Uh, let's see. Yeah, this is one that I lo- Yeah, this is sort of a good one. Um, it, it's, it's a fascinating story. Don't Close Your Eyes by Kicks. And they were another like 80s metal band or 80s hair band that sort of faded into non-existence. But they had this one hit that was sort of a ballad and they never did anything else. And what was funny was uh, they're not playing anymore, Chuck. Uh, the guy that wrote it uh, was interviewed. He was painting billboards. <laughs> Maybe he should have just started with that. <laughs> yeah, P- perhaps the only not to that that is quite a career to have a ch- a song that charts in the top fifteen and be a billboard painter. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have one from my high school days that I never did quite figure out. I never did quite figure out why people liked it back then either. Uh, Nineteen seventy three, Midnight at the Oasis from Maria Maldar. Uh-huh. Now, this is a soft rock song about a woman who's asking the son of a Middle Eastern sheik if he wants to get jiggy with it out in the desert. Uh, It offers such thought-provoking lyrics as, let's go out to a sand dune real soon and kick up a little dust. It peaked at number (laughs) six on the charts. And that whole thing sounds rather unsanitary to me with all those crevices and all that sand. The whole thing just is ripe for some sort of infectious disease. Age 77, Maria, yes, is out there still performing, but now she does, and this is how her career started, she does folk music. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't know what was number seven on the charts when that got to number six, but I bet it was a better song. If I was, uh, yeah, if I was number seven or number eight on the charts and I saw that these guys were better than me, then I'd be out there painting signs like that other guy. I'd figure there's no way I could make it. <laughs> uh, my last one that uh, I, I thought was... I don't know. I, I, I hate to say it, but I kind of like the song because I like the way it, it, it rolls. But at the same time, it is kind of a stupid song. Uh, this is from 1990 from the Australian rock band, The Divinals. And it actually was on the Arsenio Hall show, performed live. I Touch Myself. And folks, <laughs> let me just tell you this. Send your children into the other room or to bed when this thing comes on the radio and especially if the video shows up on your television set. Yeah. The name of the song is pretty self-explanatory. I know love of self is important, but at the same time, this tune takes that whole concept to another level. Yeah. It actually made it to number four on the U.S. charts. It was also number one in the Divinals, Native Australia. The band broke up in 1996. One thing I will say that was interesting about this song is that Chrissy Amphlett uh, 
the lead singer for the Divinals who passed away in 2014. She came down with MS uh, in the late 2000s and then she had breast cancer. Mm. She started a, a foundation called, before she died, a couple of years before she died, called the I Touch Myself Foundation <laughs> to promote actually the idea of women self-checking for breast cancer okay. in, in an effort to try to save lives. So she gets points for that, major points for that. Yeah, major points for that. It, it did strike me as a little bit comical. And I have to laugh when I hear of that song or about that song because it, I thought it was funny in Austin Powers. Like, and granted, maybe I was just with the right group of people when I saw that for the first time, but that one was, was pretty funny. So my last one, and th this is, I was like, sh should I go with this one or not? It's, uh, this guy is, is a big star. He was part of a group that was a big group. Uh, they didn't do a lot of music, but they did this song and it actually did chart at least in the UK as a top 40 hit. I believe it was in the movie, The Life of Brian. Eric Idle wrote it from Monty Python, The Bright Side of Life. And it started to chart because uh, supporters groups or, fir or firms at soccer matches started to sing it whenever they'd lose. Uh, I forget the team. <laughs> but, uh, but it sort of became this phenomenon in England. And he, yeah, uh, Eric, like he said, it was the dumbest thing ever. We, I got a top, But I got a top 40 hit now. I haven't heard that one. I'll have to check that one out myself. But uh, okay, yeah. I thought we had a lot of good ones on the list, though. I mean, uh, yeah. both ways, good and bad. But, uh, you know, it was been kind of an interesting show all the way around, Drew. And, yeah. of course, I appreciate uh, your major contributions and, uh, and love doing the show with you. And, you, you know, right back at you. This show doesn't happen. Like, the work that you put in is awesome. We'll be back, of course, next week with another one. But, uh, Drew, that does it for this week's show, and we'll – Tell people once again if they would like to uh, drop us an email, they can do so by sending it to halftime240 at gmail.com. Certainly, we'd love to hear from you if you have some topical ideas for us you'd like us to cover. We uh, enjoy doing the research for those topics and uh, discussing them during the show. So, that does it. You've been listening to Halftime with Chuck and Drew.